Hey, Peace Nicks. Today's guest is Spencer Bishens. He recently published the book, Social Security Disability Revealed, why it's so hard to access benefits and what you can do about it. He reached out to me explaining to me that he just published his book and that he'd worked for the Social Security Administration for 10 years. And my first thought was like, how is this going to relate to my podcast? And then he went on to explain just how he would be a great guest for this podcast because one of the ways they try to deny people access to their Social Security benefits is if they are a drug or alcohol user. So I invited him on the podcast. We had a great conversation, extremely informative. I love these conversations where I get to learn things. You know, that's what my podcast has been so beneficial for me about is I'm learning constantly. And it was just really good to talk to somebody with a different angle. So let's go ahead and dive in. Before I'm just going to say, you can get his books on BishensPublishing.com. And his name is Spencer Bishens. Let's go ahead and dive in. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug Drugs abuse. are menacing our society. Your thoughts on the drug problem? I had a great time doing drugs. So tonight, from our family to yours, from our home to yours, thank you for joining us. This is the piece on drugs. On drugs. Spencer, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited. And um, so you want to uh, start with a little bit about, you know, what got you to reach out to me and um, and what we're going to be talking about today? Yeah, so I worked for Social Security for 11 years. And during that time, I wrote and reviewed thousands of disability cases. And one of the things that comes up a lot of the time, not all the time, but a lot of claimants who are filing for disability benefits do use or have used some kind of drugs or alcohol. That's not that surprising, right? That's just American society. Lots of people drink, even if it's just beer or wine or use cannabis. So it's really not that surprising. And it's also one of my favorite topics in the disability realm. Obviously, a lot of what I did with Social Security could be kind of dull, but the medical records that I would get to see when people were using drugs and alcohol, sometimes not at their best. Sometimes they were using it as treatment to try and help them be able to actually work. And those are some of the more interesting records and some of the more interesting cases. And so when I uh, learned about your podcast, I thought, well, this is a great way to expand the universe of uh, of teaching people about social security disability. It's just something that most Americans don't know about until it's too late, right? Until they're hurt, they're diagnosed with cancer, a refrigerator falls on them, something happens and they can't work. And so I'm always looking for new audiences who might not know about this program and know that they've paid into it and that they absolutely are entitled to claim those benefits if they're entitled to them. Yep. Uh, yeah. This is something I don't know much about also being self-employed. I don't know that I pay much into it. So I don't know how that would work. Oh, you totally do. So you file a tax return, right? I pay, I, I owe money at the end of the year. Yeah. 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 So Every American is either W-2 employee or self-employed. If you're W-2, 
it's rolled into your pay stub and you, mm-hmm. you pay half and your employer pays half. But if you're self-employed, there's a line on your tax return that's a self-employment tax. That covers your social security and your Medicare. You're definitely paying into the system as well. So for all of your listeners who might be musicians or Uber drivers or gig workers, they're paying into the system too. And everyone who pays the tax is entitled to claim a disability benefit if they're injured or have a medical impairment like uh, a chronic condition or something that causes them to be unable to work. So anyone, this really applies to every American because everyone is aging all the time, right? Mm-hmm. Everyone who rides in a car, leaves their home, does anything that couldn't end up with an accident, um, or anyone who has a body that could eventually have cancer or fibromyalgia or an intestinal condition, or anything that prevents you from working, it would be good to know what to do when that happens, right? Yeah, I I feel like for me the reason I don't count on stuff like that is because I um because the money the way our business works as a musician is you write off everything you do you go out and you see music that's a write off I if I buy clothes that's costume so there's so many write offs that my income is very low so if I were to get if I were to get actually hurt and unable to work they're not going to pay close to what I make what I make to do the things that I do I, I would that's assume that's a great yeah that's a great point because the benefit is based on what you paid in. You're definitely not alone as far as self-employed people though, right? People yeah. write off business expenses. That's part of being self-employed. But yeah, you're right. There's a connection between how much you pay in and how much you get out. Two things though. First, the benefit's not really that high even for, I'm a lawyer. Someone like me, when I was working and I had a W-2 job and I was paying in, yeah, I was paying in more than you probably, but even for someone like me, if I had claimed disability, that benefit isn't really that high. It's just not very high to start with. And the other thing, obviously, in relation to your podcast and your audience is um, the question really isn't so much about what you're paying in because you, you are still paying in and you could still file a disability claim and get benefits. It's not so much the amount it's with related with regard to substance abuse. Subs- I, I don't like the word substance abuse, by the way. That's the word in the law. Just yeah. full disclaimer right up front. If I say drug addiction, alcoholism, or substance abuse, not my words. Those are Congress's words. Um, substance use, I think, is a better word. Uh, can Can prevent you from getting benefits completely. So... Yeah, you're right. How much you pay in affects to some degree how much you get out. But as I'm sure we'll talk about, it's possible for the agency to say any drug or alcohol use could completely bar you from all benefits, whatever that number would have been. That's what it, it, it didn't bar me from giving into the system. Like I, I use drugs and alcohol. Yeah. I'm like, hey, are you using drugs and alcohol? Because you might not want to give us this money because you won't be able to get it back. Don't yeah. Do that. I'll- yeah, what if you were a drug dealer and that was your job, right? And you paid, you let, let's say, just say you declared that income because you didn't want to break two laws. So you declared your income uh, and you paid tax on it. Yeah, the government will take that, right? They'll take your money based <laughs> for, for whatever your profession is. They'll 
they're happy for you to report your income uh, and take the tax. But yeah, in in the late 90s, Congress decided there are certain circumstances under which we'll take the money in, but we're not going to pay it back out. That that's really it's actually really screwed up. I mean, if yeah, if you're putting money into the system, it shouldn't matter like for what reason. Uh, like if, I guess their, their logic of how they're going to sell this to why they would do uh, do that is that if you got injured, it might be because of your drugs of alcohol, and that's why we're not wanting to pay you. Is that what their their logic is in that? That might be like the stated logic, but if you think about it, it was the '90s. It was like the don't the the don't do drugs, the say yeah. no to drugs era. And let's just be honest, who votes or at least who voted back then? Now it's different. Right. But who voted in the 90s? It wasn't young people. It was older people. It was people who, you know, might not want to talk about the M word. Now, of course, we just say cannabis and it's actually legal. I talk about this in the book. It's legal in a majority of the states now, as you know, at least for medicinal purposes. Right. Yep. Um, And I'm from Washington State. In Washington, there are stores. You just walk in, you show them your ID because you have to be 21 and you just buy it and you walk out. So, but in the 90s, it was very different, right? So definitely, when the law was passed by Congress, it was more of a like, drugs are bad type environment. And yeah. they, you know, they were playing to their constituents. They, they want to be able to go home and raise money and tell their 1990s constituents that we're not going to let those drug users get disability benefits. Yeah. And I mean, the laws just never got changed. It's just still there. Yeah. And that's, that's unfortunately the way the whole drug wars kind of played out, but yeah, the anti-drug sentiment was so, so high in the nineties. I mean, we had a Democrat president, a liberal so-called liberal president Clinton that was, that created horrible laws for people that were uh, for the, for the lower class. And it was because he was appealing to this anti-drug anti drug um, anti uh, crime sentiment, like crime and drugs were so linked together in, in our, you know, what, what we thought about. But yeah, they uh, they denied public housing, uh, student loans, all these things could be denied if you had any drug charges. And it's like, well, how's someone going to get better themselves if, they, if they've if they been using drugs and get off drugs and better themselves if they can't get housing and can't get student loans? But that's always been- And can't, and can't get a job, right? Because, get- you know, there's always that question, have you been arrested? Do you have a conviction or whatever? And so then you can't get a job. And maybe maybe part of that is that you have medical conditions. So you go file, file for disability. And now you can't even get disability benefits. Yep. Um, luckily, the law is very narrow. And I talk about this in the book, of course. But the law is quite narrow. So if drug or alcohol use is tangential to your medical situation, it's not going to prevent you from getting benefits. It has to be the reason that you can't work. So I will say this, the law was signed by President Clinton, but it was passed by a Republican Congress. So you can't fully blame the president, right? If he he doesn't have control of right, Congress. Right. But it does seem like it was negotiated from my perspective here 26 years later, because it is really narrow. It's, it does seem like they're really trying to say, if drugs and alcohol is the specific reason you can't work, no benefits for you. But it has to be the specific reason. If it's tangential, if it's if you you just happen to be using a substance, but you also have these other medical conditions that that qualify you for disability, then you're okay. Also, a really common 
uh, situation is someone who maybe wasn't using substances before their injury or illness, and then they start using them freely as treatment. I mean, isn't that what the whole uh, epidemic regarding oxycodone and oxycontin, right? Was was people who were prescribed these things? They were addicted. They they didn't know. They they were told it was not addictive. Then they became addicted. Then they got cut off. And well, now you can't get opiate medication legally. So people turn to what was cheaper and available, which was heroin. Yeah. Why should those Why should those people be penalized when they were just doing what their doctors told them to do? Yeah. So luckily, luckily the law, it's not as harsh as it could have been and as it is on other in other areas, like you said, with housing and jobs. But it does still put the burden on this person who's got so many other stressors in their life. They can't work, they're hurt, they're sick, they're going to see doctors, they're on treatment. If it's cancer, it's chemotherapy. They, they don't have the energy to fight social security. And yet there's just one more element that mm -hmm. they, one more hurdle, and it's a big hurdle that they have to get over to get benefits that they've paid into. Well, let me ask you this. How, how if I was applying for uh, social security benefits, how would they find out I was using drugs? A couple different ways. The first is they'll ask. There's application forms and they might just ask right on there. And obviously, of course, those are all done under penalty of perjury. If you lie, that's a whole separate problem, right? But the other thing is medical records, oh, yeah. um, blood tests. Sometimes uh, when people end up in the emergency room, a lot of times the first thing the emergency room will do will be a blood panel and it will include a toxicology screening. And that's not necessarily just because they suspect people of drugs. It might be that they need to know how to treat someone, right? right? If someone is coming in and they're disoriented, they'll run a tox screen because they need to know what is in your body that we need to deal with so that we can make sure you don't die. Um, but other times it, uh, it, it'll just be someone admits something to a doctor and they don't think about it until two years later when they're sitting in a hearing and the judge says, you know, I see two years ago, you were in your doc, uh, doctor's office and you told the doctor you were using cocaine. Is that accurate? So um, there's all kinds of different ways this comes up in a person's medical records or at the hearing. And yeah, it's obviously best to be truthful. Someone's asking for public benefits. They need to be honest and truthful. And there are all kinds of legal strategies that the person's representative can use to make a good faith argument as to why that substance use is not the exact reason that yeah. you're that you're that you can't work. I mean, oh, in almost every circumstance, someone's going to have other medical conditions, right? So, right there's there's always an argument to be made. No, yeah, this person's using even something like cannabis, or yeah, this person has been drinking but they've been doing so because they're depressed. It's the depression. That's the reason they can't work. The alcohol is, is a side issue. Right. And that, that is the case. A lot of the, a lot of the time that, um, yeah, mental, mental disorders, especially the more severe ones like bipolar are going to lead to some to drug use, but if, it's a tendency to blame the drugs and they see a lot of sick people and they go, that's because of the drugs. It's like, no, they're sick. The drugs are because of their sickness, not the other way around. 
Yeah. And, do- and, and psychologists do that too. Yep. Right. It, it's, we, we th- want to think that like the medical community has all the answers, but they don't. And so when someone goes in to see a psychologist or psychiatrist, and sometimes social security will make you do that as part of your application. Sometimes some of those psychologists will just hear that you're on, that you're using some kind of substance and immediately think like, oh yeah, drug user. They're just, they're just trying to get public benefits and that's the reason they can't work. And that's the cause of their symptoms. And of course that's not necessarily true, but the psychologists are human and they don't have all the answers and they're just guessing a lot of the time anyway. Yeah. So let me ask you this. If, if I went, if I'm applying for social security and they ask, do you use drugs or alcohol? And I just say, no, cause I'm like, I'm just going to lie because I don't want to get a lot of people probably do lie if they do, cause they just want to get their benefits. So they say yeah, no, probably. And then they don't think about, cause the last time I was in the hospital, I remember they came back with my blood work and like, they, like cannabis came out and um, alcohol and stuff like that. So they had that in the report. So if they just looked at my medical records, would they just immediately be like, you lied. And that's per- like, I'll, am I going to get arrested or like, what's going to be the penalty? Do you know? Definitely won't get arrested, Um, at least, you know, not for that, because, yeah, lying in a federal proceeding under oath, that's obviously perjury. Yes, that's a crime. But like Social Security, they're too busy. They're not turning your case over to the U.S. attorney. So you shouldn't lie. Right. um, Because the reason that you shouldn't lie is not so much that you'll get arrested. It's that once the judge knows you're lying you're basically done. You're toast. That's going to be an unfavorable decision. And it's going to be a fairly easy denial for the judge because they'll just say, I can't trust anything you said in that one hour of testimony because you lied to me. You admitted you lied. I don't trust anything you're saying. I think you can work. So that's why you don't want to lie. It's better to, to admit what you're using and to have a representative, an attorney or non attorney representative who knows this drug addiction and alcoholism law, and who can, like I said, make a good faith argument to the judge about why that's not the reason that you can't work. But let's say you you do get caught. Maybe it was a lie. Maybe you just forgot, right? Yeah, right. Maybe like, like most people, maybe you just have a beer every now and then, or occasionally you use cannabis and you just didn't think about it. Well, no, that's not necessarily going to destroy your ability to have a a valid claim because, for example, if you were using the substances before you alleged you were disabled, it doesn't matter. That's not when you're trying to get benefits. The other thing is, let's say you were using something after you alleged you became disabled. Well, you can move your alleged onset date, the date you say you became disabled. You could always just move that. You make an amendment. You say, oh, yeah, judge. Now we, we're not going to say I became disabled January 1st, 2020. Now we're going to say it's December 1st, 2020. And that's after all the substance use. And now we're good to go. You can do that. So there's all kinds of ways to take whatever a person's history is as far as drug or alcohol use and to make an argument to the judge it's, it's not the drugs. It's not the alcohol. And, and a lot of times it's really hard to tell because maybe someone has just been, they just have constant use of substances, right? Uh, consistent. It's never stopped. They've never had a period of sobriety. Well, actually the rule favors the claimant in that situation. It's the agency that has to show 
that it was the drugs or alcohol that was causing the person to be unable to work. If it's so intertwined, the person's symptoms and the drug or alcohol use, they're so intertwined throughout the whole time that you can't tell, like, was it the depression, anxiety, and PTSD, or is it the substance use? You just don't know, then the agency can't deny you benefits based on that drug and alcohol law. Mm-hmm. So, so the burden's on the eight on the government to show that it was the drug and alcohol use. So that's why I say, yeah, it sucks that that law is there. But it, I, I do feel like it was somewhat fairly written in that, yeah, you've got to like provide some evidence that there are other impairments, but then the government has to say, no, we, it was definitely the drugs and alcohol. And if they can't do that, they can't say that the drugs and alcohols will cause you to be disabled. Gotcha. Now, let me ask you this. Would I be correct to assume that putting cannabis on, on my list of substances is going to be easier to still get my claim than if I put cocaine or meth? It really all depends on where you live and who your judge is. And as I point out in the book, you can't control which judge you get. Those are all randomly assigned. So it's not really something worth worrying about. But so I wrote disability decisions in the state of Washington, which was one of the first two states, along with Colorado, to do away with the joke of having to have a prescription and to just say, right. we're just going to let you walk into a state regulated store and buy it. And, and that's actually, I think that started in 2014. And that's when I started uh, writing disability decisions in the state of Washington. And the whole seven years I was there, even the more conservative, Uh, right-leaning judges. They understood that it was legal in Washington. So they're federal judges. It's not legal federally, which means it still comes under the purview of this drug and alcohol law, Mm -hmm. but they get it, right? They know people are using it. They're using it legally under state law. People would testify in their hearing. Yeah. Where'd you get it? Well, I just walked into a store and I bought it. So even the most conservative judges I noticed in Washington were pretty lenient just because they understand the reality of the situation. There are some judges that will say, you've used marijuana. No, no benefits for anyone who's ever used marijuana. Um, And and as I mentioned in the book, you can actually kind of tell what kind of judge you have by whether they use the word marijuana or cannabis. Yeah. Wow. Right? These people who call it cannabis. Oh, how long have you been using cannabis? They're probably going to be more lenient, but people who use marijuana, which I'm sure, as you know, is a very loaded phrase with negative racial connotations yep. dating back to the 1930s. Um, mm-hmm. Anyone who's using that phrase, that word, is probably going to be more strict but still, again, they understand that the substance is legal. Whereas I think you said cocaine, right? In your example, not legal in any state to my knowledge. So they're probably gonna be a little more harsh, but it also depends on the context. If they see that, if they find out that you were using because it came up in an emergency room toxicology screening and the ER doctor says, why are you using that? You say, I'm in a lot of pain. I'm just trying to take care of my pain. Well, trying whatever you can to 
take care of your pain so that you can go back to work actually makes you somewhat of a credible claimant when you're claiming disability benefits because you're showing that you're trying not to need them for too long, right? So it all depends on the context of why you're using it. Someone who's using a substance like cocaine or heroin or whatever to help their pain may be seen as more credible than someone who's sitting around their house all day using cannabis and hasn't looked for a job in two years. Yeah, but I feel like most people that use drugs, even the guy that sits at home smoking cannabis, they're they're going through something. I mean, because I don't think anybody desires to just do nothing. I mean, I I I have I have plenty of free time and I choose it to do a podcast because I want to do more stuff. And it's like I don't have to do that. I could just be out swimming and going kayaking right now. But no, I want to yeah. do stuff. And people who use cocaine and meth, a lot of people that have suffered from major depression or ADHD will self-medicate with those drugs. Now they're not the drugs that I would recommend doing, but they just naturally are drawn to those substances. So yeah, I would like to think that we, we could live in a world where you don't immediately judge, but I could just see a, a judge seeing the word meth user and just being like, no, this is not, we're not um, helping a meth user get on disability. I don't, I don't know, but like you're saying. Yeah, that they... yeah, yeah. And, and you said at the beginning of that comment, uh, people don't want to be lying around doing nothing. And, and, uh, yeah, that's true. But and maybe that person has no choice. Maybe they're in so much pain. It like, it just hurts to get up and go to the bathroom and make, prepare a meal and like going, leaving home and going to a job and standing there for eight hours a day. Like they just can't do it because they're in so much pain. Mm -hmm. And, and that's why I say that, you know, there's always another argument. If you're in that much pain, there's a reason, you know, see it if you can afford it, see a doctor. I talk about uh, in part four of the book, if you can't, if you don't have health insurance, if you can't afford to see specialists, I provide a lot of uh, information on different ideas for different places you could go to get evidence because that person's probably got some kind of physical condition where they, they, they need those substances to medicate them because they're in pain, right? Or a mental health condition. And I also provide lots of suggestions in the book. You know, if you can't afford to pay a psychologist $125 an hour, here's some ways that you could try and not only get help for your symptoms, but also develop a medical record to show social security. Here's why I can't work. Here are the mental health impairments I have, and here's how it impacts my ability to work. Um, so yeah, I, I agree that very likely the in, in in the situation you just said that that person who's using heroin or meth they probably didn't choose it either right like you right. said something about it's not the drug i would choose but if you were sold uh an opioid medication for your back injury and then they cut you off and you ended up on heroin that wasn't a choice was it that no. was you just doing your best to follow your doctor's advice and you just kind of ended up there right Oh, exactly. And also I said, I wouldn't use, choose meth to treat ADHD, but I would, heroin's a great pain reliever. The problem is, is that it's, uh, it's, you don't know what you're buying on the streets. You can buy something that can kill you. And yeah, we talk about the opioid crisis. They overprescribed for sure, but they prescribe in these pill mills, a lot fewer people were dying when the, when the Oxycontin was on the streets than what's happening now. And that's because the government shut down those prescriptions. And what they should have done is allowed them to keep prescribing the people that are addicted and to 
figure out how to get them off of them without just cold turkey cutting them off. That that's why we're seeing this this epidemic of drug overdoses right now. And that's happening. In, I mean, you're the expert on this, so correct me if I got the facts wrong here. But that that that's happening in the Rust Belt, Appalachia, in the South. I mean, these are places where most a lot of people tend to not have very high paying jobs. They're very physical jobs. The reason that that opioid crisis happened is because that company was targeting people who they knew were in physical pain, right? Who had yeah. really physical jobs and who were having back injuries and knee injuries and who felt like, I don't want to get fired. I'm going to do whatever I have to do to keep working. And then ironically, not only can't they work, but now social security comes along and says, oh, you're using drugs. Even though you were trying to work, use the drugs to try to work. Now you can't work. And because you tried to use those drugs, now we're going to say you can't even get disability benefits. So in that sense, it's, it's really kind of backwards, right? And that's why the disability judges, the good ones, the honest ones, really do try and look at not just what you're using, but why you're using it. And that's why I say that that story as to what substances you're using and why I think is more important than what those substances are called. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, um, and like you said, when you talk about these low paying jobs, I mean, can you imagine like the person that sits around and does nothing? Well, if you've come from a traumatic home and you don't even have, you know, you didn't make it through high school. So you have no high school educate or no, no, um, high school diploma. You maybe have a criminal record from some drug arrest. So you you're going out and you're trying to get a job making $8 an hour as a cashier or whatever job you're, you're even if you get the job, it's not like, yeah, I got a job. It's like, now I can barely afford anything with this job that I'm going to hate. I mean, sometimes I think sitting on the couch and getting high just seems like a better alternative than going out there and getting denied after shitty job after shitty job. So for some people, they get stuck in that situation. Um, yeah. And, and then that cashier job, a lot of people think like, oh, cashier, they're just standing there taking money and making change. But that's not true. Like in a grocery store or uh, in, a, in a gas station, gas station is a great example. Those cashiers are often also responsible for stocking the shelves and like mm -hmm. cases of beer can weigh over 20 pounds. Yep. So they're, that's, that's not an easy job and it's very high volume. It's a lot of hours and it only takes one incident. And as someone reviewing medical records and disability claims, that's what I would see all the time is that one incident, that one time I went to pick something up. And I just felt something pop in my back. And that was it. After that day, I couldn't lift anything. I couldn't stand. I'm in pain all the time. I don't have a, a high school education. Uh, like you said, maybe I got arrested at 18 because my particular neighborhood, you know, the police are just, there's just a higher police presence there and they're more mm -hmm. likely to pull people over. Yep. And, and, and now I can't even go and do that minimum wage job, like what am I? What am I supposed to do? I can't afford to see a doctor. I can't go afford to pay pharmaceutical prices for pain relief. So that's just the reality of our labor and educational and employment, employment and criminal justice system. Like they're all connected, right? And that's just kind of who we are in the United States. It's sad, but that's yeah. the reality. And that really hasn't changed a whole lot since the 90s. And yeah, you get people who are 
some people in their 20s, but actually a lot of people, a lot of claimants in their 40s and early 50s. So they really have been trying. They've been in that situation, but they've stuck it out for 20, 25 years of of minimum wage, of living right on the edge of poverty, one paycheck away from disaster, and they're aging. So their body is really taking a toll and they're not young. So they're not as employable in with anything involving technology, right? Once nobody wants to hire someone in their fifties when we're using like iPads for inventory now, because that person might not understand how to use it. You hire someone in their twenties, they're cheaper and they know the technology. Yeah. So yeah, the tech is really just stacked against this segment of American society. And the sad part, the saddest part, I think, is that that's not a small segment of society. That's like the vast majority of the United States. Yeah. Um, so let me ask you, uh, if, how, would having a drug arrest record uh, prevent you from getting any benefits? Does that have any impact on it? There are uh, felon regulations related to supplemental security income, which, so there's two, two programs with disability, with social security. One is the earned benefit. You pay the tax, the social security tax, you earn the benefit. And that's uh, uh, the title two program, the SSDI program that everyone who pays into the program is entitled to claim benefits on. The SSI program, supplemental security income, that's just funded through regular income taxes. And that's really meant for people who didn't pay into the program. Like, let's just say you had zero profit every year. You were self-employed, but you had so many expenses. You weren't paying into the program. You didn't earn enough credits. You could still file a claim for supplemental security income, but that program has more restrictions. And there is a restriction on felony convictions. And the other, just in a related note, let's say you are approved for benefits, for SSI benefits. Those benefits are really there to make sure you don't become homeless or starve. That's it. They're very, very little. We're talking like $1,000 a month. It's just there to make sure you have a roof and food. So if if you're- $1,000 a month isn't getting you a roof. Right. So if you're incarcerated for up to 12 months, those benefits are suspended. If you're incarcerated, then for more than 12 months, they just terminate your SSI benefits. Because even though you didn't choose this, the government is giving you a roof and food. So they say, oh, you don't need SSI anymore. And so actually a lot, not an insignificant number of cases I saw were actually from inmates in either state prisons or federal prison who would file SSI claims near their release date because they had previously been on SSI and it got terminated. So they think they can qualify medically. So right before their release, they would go and they would apply again. That's that's a thing. Like that's just something that uh, inmates all around the country know about. And so they'll do it. And so that's not a small number of cases, but also because a lot of people, they know I have a felony conviction. I'm not going to get a job when I get out. And I've got medical conditions. So I'll go apply for, for SSI. It's the, the whole system. It's, it's all connected and it's not very good, is it? It's not Uh, very good at 
treating people equally, at treating Americans in a humane manner, at providing people what they need to be able to survive, and about treating people who have paid into the system for a long time with respect by promising them, if you become sick or injured, if you need disability benefits, they'll be there for you. And then, you know, you have to fight for them. And it turns out they're not. Yeah. Let me ask you this, the, the ban, the, you know, the ban, the box movement where they, where people are trying to say, you know, we need to get the box off of the employment application. You shouldn't be able to ask if someone has a previous record, they've already done their time. And I always look at that. I've always supported that because it'll help the the people that need jobs will help. But also it seems like it would, it would take a huge burden uh, or some of the burden off of the social security system. If people could know they could come out and get a job, they would be more, maybe some would rather get a job than get social security, but they just know it's a, it's a futile effort to go try to get a job. So just go ahead and go get the disability. It's all very ironic, isn't it? That you would think that the same people who would, say, who would be against a ban the box thing? In other words, who are totally okay with knowing if you've got a conviction, because then we can keep, you know, I'm not going to hire a criminal. You would think those people would then be supportive of public benefits, but no, those people are the same people who are opposed to public benefits. So they don't want you to be able to get a job, but then they don't want you to be able to get public benefits, but they don't want you to commit further crimes because you need to feed yourself and your family somehow. Yeah. There's just no logic to that, right? They, they don't want you like, in a tent. They don't want you in a tent in their city either. They don't want you. In, they, good <laughs> point. So, so like, where do they expect you to go? Whereas people such as yourself, you're opposed to ban the box because you want to try and help people get jobs. They don't need the benefits, but then you want people to be able to get the benefits if they can't get a job and if they deserve them. Yeah. It's just, it's, that and I agree with you. I, that's my position as well, um, and and that really is Social Security's position. Please go try and work. We really want to do everything we can to encourage you to try and work. From letting you see if you can work while you're applying, if you are approved for disability benefits, we're going to let you go work, earn money, and still get benefits because we want to encourage you to try and do that. Mm-hmm. So there, there are different elements of the program that are constantly saying, yes, please go try and work. We're not going to cut you off. We want you to see if you can do it so that disability benefits are a short-term solution, not the rest of your life. So that's how the law is. But in practicality, as you're pointing out, maybe it doesn't always work out that way because you can't get a, you have a conviction, so you can't get a job. So you go try and get benefits. You get a judge who says, you were using marijuana or cocaine, no benefits for you. So then maybe you you end up in a tent and then maybe you're depressed. So you're using more substances. So you have another conviction. It's it's a cycle that I'm not going to say we haven't found a way out of in the United States, because I think it's more like we don't want to find a way out. Yeah. Because other countries have, like in Portugal, they've de- fa- very famously decriminalized drugs. Yep. They just, you're not going to get arrested for drugs. And turns out they don't have a big criminal drug problem. Who knew if you stopped arresting and prosecuting people, your amount of convictions would go down. And now people can actually get treatment and can go work and pay taxes into the system and not be needing public benefits. 
it is, we, it, it's a no, we know how to do it. We just choose not to. Exactly. We saw the same thing happen in Baltimore when the, when COVID happened, they stopped arresting for minor drug charges because, because they didn't want to fill up the, their jails. And they realized that they thought crime was going to go up, but it was unavoidable. Well, crime went down and they go. So the DA, after COVID restrictions were lifted, they were like, we're not going to go back to arresting for those things because we're seeing crime go down. It's like, yeah, stop creating criminals. You'll stop having crime. It's, stop it's, create, creating criminals. And then when you create criminals, you create people who can't get a job and people who then maybe don't qualify for disability benefits. Right. It's it's yep. it's a domino yep. effect. Exactly. And if you stop creating, con- stop the convictions then those people, maybe some of them are not going to go back to work, but probably a lot of them are. And so if you can stop those people from getting a felony conviction, yeah, maybe they do go back to work and they don't need disability benefits and they're paying into the system and you just get all these positive effects. So it, yeah, we we have this law from 1996. Congress hasn't changed it. The agency has has issued new guidance about nine years ago, I think they issued some new guidance that made it kind of look like they were going to evaluate things slightly differently, but they didn't. It was just repackaging, you know, lipstick on a pig. And it was exactly the same. So the way that that drug and alcohol law works hasn't really changed. Certainly hasn't changed since I started in 2010. And it really does come down to the judge and my job. I was a, an attorney working for the judges and I would write the decisions. So it's a, a partnership behind the scenes between the judges who hold the hearing and their staff attorneys who write the decisions to try and figure out where's the evidence taking us? What's the best decision? Where, what is the evidence support? And, um, and yeah, so my job would be to, look at the evidence and help the judge decide, is this person unable to work specifically because of the drugs or alcohol or for another reason? And so even though the law hasn't changed, a lot of it really comes down to the staff that are looking at your case, how sympathetic they are to your situation and, or how biased they are just against everyone who uses drugs and alcohol. Yeah. And there's definitely that bias. And, you know, every time I see it, there's a law that's uh, open for interpretation, then that leaves room for discrimination based on race and other things. Have you seen any discrimination um, within what you, when, what, when you were working? Yeah, both in the law itself and how it's applied. So starting with how it's applied. Yeah. Like I said, first of all, all laws are open to interpretation. If we've yeah. learned nothing from this year's 2022 Supreme Court term, we've at least learned everything's open to interpretation. Yeah. Right. And and reinterpretation over time. So yeah, and that that 1996 law is no different. Um, there are elements to the to the law and regulations and social security can say if the drugs and alcohol is the reason you can't work, then you we are required to find you not disabled. But who decides? It's it's individual humans decide making those decisions. And so, of course, they can look at your medical records and creatively interpret things however they want. Yeah. But but also the way the law was passed also provides some discrimination because there's one thing that we haven't talked about yet that's not considered drug drug use that's not part of that law and that is tobacco 
Cigarettes, not considered drugs. You can use cigarettes every day, give yourself lung cancer, have that be why you can't work, show up at the hearing, light a cigarette in the hearing room. I mean, they'll tell you you're not allowed to smoke in here, put that out. But the point is, you can say to the judge, I've been a smoker every day for 30 years, and you could cough and have COPD and lung cancer and have doctors say, that's why you can't work, not drugs and alcohol. That law doesn't apply at all. Wow. And the reason is, lots of congressmen from the South, so, right? So when they wrote the yeah. law, they specifically ex targeted drugs such as cannabis, a major competitor at the time to tobacco and left tobacco alone. So even just in how the law is written, you're exempting what we thought, well, not what we thought, but what the tobacco companies at the time in the nineties said was, was, we're not a problem. We're not causing, there's no proof that cigarettes cause cancer. That that was what they were saying back in the nineties. Right. Really? So they got ex- so they so they got exempted. Oh yeah, yeah. I don't think those lawsuits against the tobacco companies happened until after 2000. But I, I but I thought we at least knew that cancer was caused by tobacco because I remember learning about it in school. They kept on in the law. Yeah, of course we did. But what I'm saying is officially, uh, companies like Philip Morris didn't admit to it. Gotcha, gotcha. Right. And they were big companies, and they could fund congressional campaigns and. The- a lot of members of Congress from the states where they grow tobacco. So, like, of course, we all knew back right. then, but as far as Congress was concerned, marijuana is the problem, not cigarettes. Now we are 22 years later, we know better, but the law hasn't changed. So, the law hasn't caught up to what we now know and what is now widely known in society. Tobacco is a problem, cannabis isn't, but the law flips them around. Yeah, it stands still today, and federally, it's the same way. But and I'll say this: I don't think people that uh, should, I don't think people should be denied benefits for using tobacco any more than they should be denied for using any other substance. But uh, what you're saying is it's just not fair. The fact. Well, that let tobacco- me. But let me challenge you on that. What if you smoke and you cause yourself COPD and lung cancer, and and let's just say you have no other impairments? What if that's the reason you can't work? In other words, what if you caused your own disability? Yeah, but this happens with people with eating you know, eating too much sugar and getting diabetes or eating too much food and they're obese. Like there's a lot of health problems that happen because of the way we live and, and it's people are going to live the way they're going to and we need to help people that get sick. And if we can get people to smoke less, which we have on a larger scale, that's great. But if somebody chooses to smoke and they get injured, we need to have a system to help them, I think. That's a really good point. It's a great argument. And that's how the law is, by the way. You, you can do what I just said and get disability. And, and how is that different from, uh, I do lots of hard labor. I like work. I like like really laborious jobs. And so I lift all day long for work and I give myself a back injury. It's kind of the same thing, right? I, I did it to myself over right. time. Why should we treat one of those situations differently from the other? And so... And so the, the law doesn't, you, you can, as I talk about in the book, you can literally induce yourself into a disability over time and still qualify for disability benefits. It's not a thing. It's not like people are doing it on purpose. I point right. that out in the book. No one would do that on purpose because you're destroying your mind. You're destroying your body. 
for very little government benefits. It makes no logical sense that I mean one no, does that on purpose. No, if we if we banned the box and someone could get a decent high paying job, they'd much rather have a more enjoyable life doing that for sure. And also I want to point out that someone that uses heroin, injectable heroin and loses a limb because of an infection that, that they, they didn't want that to happen either. Like they're not like they did it to themselves. They didn't want that to happen. If they had access to clean needles and a safe injection site, maybe they wouldn't have lost their limb. People that, you know, if your injury is from tobacco or hard work or heroin, either way, if you're, if you're unable to work, we need to have a system that's compassionate for people. Or as you pointed out about two minutes ago, the, the food system in our country isn't great. Diabetes is a real problem. And if someone can't afford treatment, they may end up losing a limb as a result of diabetes. Yep. Well, why should we treat that person differently who ended up losing a limb because, uh, you know, as, as a result of heroin use? It's, yeah. it's a substance that entered the body and there was a particular result. In one case, it's sugar. In another case, or other bad things that are in food. And in another case... It's heroin. And again, it comes back to the law from the 90s. It doesn't say sugar's a problem. It doesn't say tobacco's a problem. So it only says certain, we've just decided as a society, certain things are drugs, right? Right. Even though these things 130 years ago were completely legal. I mean, Coca-Cola, isn't Coca-Cola called Coca-Cola because it originally had cocaine? Yep. And that was used as medicine for children. Yep. And so, and so back then, what we thought of as medicine is different from today, what we think of as medicine. But even today, or at least 20 years ago, we were basically prescribing heroin for people and yep. telling them it's safe and non-addictive. You know, this will get you back into your heavy labor job in Kentucky. Take this substance, no problem. It's not drugs. Turns out it was really no, chemically exactly the same as heroin, right? Um, yeah. And heroin was actually, a, a, you could go to the drugstore and buy it right off on the shelf. Bayer made it, the aspirin company, Bayer. You could go buy heroin, I think from 19, from 1890 to 1903, somewhere around the, like those years, 13 years, you could just go in and buy your heroin. And and the thing is, it wasn't a big problem. People weren't just like dying in the streets and getting addicted. It's The prohibition is what's causing the problems we're seeing today. Yeah. And people die for other re plenty of other reasons. I mean, diabetes is a huge problem. Yep. And it's, it's not because of heroin, um, heart disease. You know, my, I have a, a family member who grew up eating lots of red meat and ended up getting heart disease. Who knew? Right. So yeah, what we decide, what we put labels on is, you know, this is drug. That isn't, this is bad. That isn't obviously changes over time. So it's unfortunate that we have this law from 1996 and that it's not been updated, it really should be. And I do think that there should be a heavier burden on the government to disqualify someone. In other words, yeah, they have to say, at, the, at present, they have to say, well, drug and alcohol use has to be the specific reason you are disabled. And if it's, the, if it's what causes you to be unable to work, you don't get benefits. Even if you have another impairment, and I think they should update that and say, even if it was the drugs and alcohol that caused you to be disabled, if we find that you were only using those substances because of these other impairments, then we're still not going to disqualify you. 
Yeah, I think the only way you should be able to be disqualified is if you are still able to work. If you're able to work, then you're not, you can't get benefits. But if you're unable to work, whatever the reason is, we should not make. Have, we should have a system that keeps you from being homeless for sure. We, we need to. And I don't. I don't know if you've done much research in like UBI, um, universal basic income. And I and I have a lot of questions about it. But it's it's fascinating. It's in the book. Oh, I talk it? about UBI in the book. Yeah, at the end of the book, when I talk about how the system could be improved, I basically I, what the basic argument is it's not just social security disability. All of our public benefits programs, SNAP, WIC, school lunch, section eight housing, anything where you have to qualify. Well, we talked a few minutes ago about uh, discrimination, right? Discrimination happens when we make someone qualify for benefits. That's when we're just inviting people to be discriminated against. So if we just take, and it's expensive. I mean, so social security alone has tens of thousands of employees that are there to decide whether or not someone qualifies for not very much in benefits. So in the book, I argue, yeah, if we just had a UBI, we got rid of all these qualification systems and we got rid of this massive bureaucracy, and we just gave people money, we wouldn't have to ask them if they qualify for it, which means we don't have to ask them what substances they're using. Your life, your body, use whatever you want. Yeah. Here, here's some money. So that if you lose your job or if you have a hard time getting a job, you don't become homeless. Then you don't up in a tent and people don't complain about tents. And then landlords don't have to worry about not getting paid rent. And then Congress doesn't have to do this massive rent relief when we hit a pandemic, right? Yeah. So yeah, yeah the I I'm totally on board. The UBI, I think, and it and it's not new, it's not untested. No, yeah, they've, right. they've done experiments with it. In Canada, there was one that was really promising. The thing I questions, of course, I have is that, that saying uh, someone's got to do the dishes, you know. So you have if everybody all of a sudden starts making money, well, then maybe there's not going to be as many servers and restaurants. But then you have to ask yourself, well, maybe we don't deserve to have these servers. Maybe people shouldn't be. We have to maybe rethink the whole social, you know, what it means. Maybe we all chip in on the dishes. I don't know how it plays out, but yeah. or, or or those servers should be being paid a living wage like they are in in France. I mean, yeah. in France. You get a job in in a restaurant as a server. First of all, it's not cons- it's not looked down upon in the same way that teachers in Finland or some of the, I think in Finland or Iceland are the, some of the highest paid people in the country because they're it's a revered profession. In the United States, like, oh, if you can't get a job doing anything else, you just go become a teacher. And we don't treat servers very well, but in France, it's a professional occupation. Yeah. You know, you wear a suit or a tuxedo, you go to school to learn how to become a server and you, you're paid a professional wage. And yeah, and, and maybe that's the key. I think saying like, oh, well, if everyone had seven, 800 bucks or a thousand bucks a month, no one would do, well, no one would work. That's a ridiculous comment. Like right. as you pointed out earlier, that's not, it. it's barely enough to keep you afloat but at least it could possibly keep you afloat. And I mean, think about what happens to the unemployment system in 2020. In almost every state, it's just completely collapsed because states weren't prepared for it. And Congress had to do the CARES Act and PPP and all kinds of things. They had to scramble because this wasn't already put in place. And they, and they did three UBIs, right? Yeah. Three universal payments, to almost every American. But if they had just had that in place as a normal thing, it would have been like, oh, pandemic, 
well, that kind of sucks, but we're not going to hit a recession because everyone has this minimal level of income. We help each other out. And it would help the rich people too. All the rich people, the super rich who are opposed to something like a UBI. Well, major massive companies in this country exist because the masses are consumers. We're a consumer society. Yeah, if was, you just Amazon made a, a fortune when everybody got those checks in the mail. So it would be a, yeah. it would create, create a circle. And Andrew Yang talked about it in his book where he's like, the um, if if we taxed Amazon the money, because what we're doing is we're moving to automation. How do we the robots do the job for us? How they do it for us is we got to take the profits at the companies that are automating and take some of those profits and give it back to people that are consuming and create a circle. Yeah, and and just as it relates to your audience, what that would do again is it would keep the money flowing. It would keep the economy moving. Which I mean, it's not like you're going to always be able to avoid a recession. It's a normal cyclical thing. But it would moderate recessions, right? The the corrective parts in the cyclical economy wouldn't be so bad because everyone would have this income that they could depend on. Not a lot, but a little bit. And as it relates to your audience, that means people could use the substances that they're addicted to because they've been lied to or that they're using to treat their mental health symptoms. They're using because we don't have a, a universal healthcare system in this country and that's all they can get. For whatever reason, people can do their thing and not be hassled and not be discriminated against and treated differently than people who have a glass of wine or whiskey every night or people who you know use sugar and candy as, as their own personal self-medication. So yeah, I, I, it's the last chapter in the book. It's uh, I think it's fascinating to think about and to explore, but the reason it's chapter 34 and there's 33 chapters before it is that while this is a great theoretical long-term exercise, it's not the system we have now, right? And so right. it's great to think about how could we improve things because that's the only way they're ever going to be improved. But I also want to make sure that today's claimants, people who are in the system now, people who need benefits now, people who can't work today can know, okay, I love your, your thinking for the future, but that doesn't help me now in 2022. I need to know how to use the system today as well. So the first 33 chapters are about the system that currently exists. And uh, I think it's really important that anyone who has a medical condition that knows someone that does, that thinks they or a loved one can't work or might not be able to work in the future. It's important to understand the whole system. Definitely also that chapter about DA and A, how, how drugs and alcohol affects your claim, but also all the other parts of the system, right? How the agency looks at your medical evidence and what kind of evidence you need so that you know what to expect, so that you know what you have to do to prove your case, to give yourself the best chance of success, even if you're using or have used some kind of substance. Yeah. So um, I, I like what you're talking about, like what you're writing about. And um, I, I'm and we're going to wrap this up. It was great talking with you. But so before I let you go, though, uh, let's just where can people find your book? Sure. The book is called Social Security Disability Revealed. 
why it's so hard to access benefits and what you can do about it. It's on Amazon in ebook and paperback. It's also on Scribd, Kobo, Barnes and Noble, Apple. The easiest way to find everything is to just go to bishonspublishing.com because we got links to everything right at our website. That's B-I-S-H-I-N-S, bishonspublishing.com. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. There's links to all the different places to buy the book. And I'll even post a link so someone can listen to this interview. Awesome. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. And um, it really wasn't, I love talking with you. And the first time I've talked about um, UBI on the podcast, and that's something I'm really fascinated or interested in. So, um, so yeah, thank you so much for being and joining me on the Peace on Drugs. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. I love talking about the DANA law because it's so important. So many people are using drugs and alcohol and over a million people are applying for disability benefits each year. So it's really relevant to so many people. Awesome. Well, I love the work you're doing. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Well, I'll talk to you later. Thanks. Bye. Bye. All right. Peace, Nicks. As always, if you like what we're doing, go to Apple Podcasts. Give us a five-star rating. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter at the Peace on Drugs podcast. And go to www.thepeaceondrugs.com slash subscribe and subscribe to our newsletter. All right. We're going to let Twiggy Branches take us out. So peace. You pay for what you get You pay for what you can't You pay for what you can't When you align yourself with the 4 p.m. jet set
Sure.